Good afternoon. How many more Sundays before Christmas? Well, how many candles there? Four. Those are Advent candles, really. Uh, it has got to do with uh, what I have to share this afternoon. Before you know it, the year has come to an end. And uh, we look forward to a new year, but uh, there's more to go yet in the life of the church calendar before this year draws to a close. So with that, I'd like for us to turn to First John, chapter 3, if you would. Get this open. First John, chapter three, beginning from verse one to verse ten. It's been good to be away, and it's good to come back again. I, well, we were only away for what just two Sundays, but I felt that it's been a long time. So it's quite strange to be here today in some sense, uh, small as it is this church. First John 3, reading from verse 1 to verse 10. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right, is not a child of God, nor is anyone who doesn't love his brother. This is the word of God. Shall we pray? Lord, we come and we pause behind, before, before this word, this written word, this revealed word, this divine word. And Father, we pray that you speak to us this day as we pause, as we attend ourselves to you. Lord, we come to you and we open ourselves to you and we make ourselves vulnerable before you. We humble ourselves before your word. We bow before your word. We submit ourselves before your word. So teach us, Lord, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
I want to start by making this statement that, that it is the case, isn't it, that the church is out of sync with the world all the time. On every score, the church is out of sync with the world, or out of synchronization with the world. You see, according to the secular calendar out there, December spells the end of the year, doesn't it? It does. But according to the church calendar, December spells the beginning of the church year. Now, you wouldn't understand much about the church calendar, I know, because most of us come from non-liturgical churches. We come from churches that do not keep the liturgy as such. But if you should go into a liturgical church, uh, like All Saints in the city or uh, the Lutheran churches in the city, uh, you will find that uh, for them, they're very clear that the month of December starts off the new year for the church. And uh, so in, in, in quite a number of ways, the church is out of sync with the world. The world begins the year in January. But the church begins the year in December. The church begins the week in Monday, on a Monday. Uh, the world, rather, begins the week on a Monday. But the church begins each week on a Sunday. Sunday is the first day, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And out there in the shopping malls, if you were out there, I'm not sure whether you've been out there this week, but out there in the shopping malls, the colors are already Christmassy, red and green and gold. But here in church, it's not Christmas yet. In fact, the color of Advent, if this were a liturgical church, would be purple. Not red, not gold, not those splashes yet, not yet. Hold on, not quite Christmas yet. So, in the average liturgical church that you go into, the, color, the, the colors are quite subdued. Uh, yeah. So, out there in the shopping malls, the, the music is vibrant and jingly and loud and noisy but in here in this month of uh, the advent the, the the music is rather sober it's more reflective it's more contemplative so as christians this next four weeks is going to be quite hard for us to pass through because we're not we're living on two planes we are straddled between two worlds so to speak uh, it's not christmas yet it is not christmas it's far from christmas and yet you have your gifts to buy, you have your cakes to bake, you have your cards to write. So we find ourselves out there and in here, straddling between two worlds. Look, we are meeting here this afternoon. We are meeting here, and this is really the first week of the Advent. But it looks like Christmas is here already. For all intents and purposes, Christmas has arrived I think in many companies out there, the Christmas parties have already begun. Uh, Christmas dinners have already been held. And I believe that the Christmas parade has come and gone. Have I not? Uh, it has, yeah. I thought so. So this whole affair is simply one gigantic uninterrupted feast from Thanksgiving in November right into the middle of uh, January where you celebrate your, your New Year and so on. And only very few people understand what Advent is. So the season of Advent has been swallowed up by this feeding frenzy of buying and, and feasting. You know something, we are preparing for a feast when we haven't even yet begun to fast. It's just like celebrating Easter without having gone through Lent. 
It's cheating, really, in short. By the way, if, if, you, if you want to be really proper and precise, in its proper context, Christmas carols, Christmas trees, Christmas dinners and parties really belong to the 12 days of Christmas, not in this period of the Advent. It's really after December the 25th, then you have all those things to be precise and proper. And it makes you wonder whether all this commercialization of Christmas is really a conspiracy to anesthetize us from the true meaning of Christmas. Because we can make so much of Christmas and so little of Christ. We can. And it's easy. It is easy to make so much of Christmas that we make nothing at all for Christ. All right, you ask, what's this word I have never heard before until today? Advent. What's, what's the Advent? Advent begins on the fourth Sunday prior to Christmas. And we have exactly four Sundays before Christmas. The second, the ninth, the sixteenth, and the twenty-third. So we have exactly four Sundays to go before Christmas. So this really today is the first Sunday in Advent. The word Advent comes from a Latin word Adventus, which means coming. It refers both to the first coming of Christ in Bethlehem, but in a larger way it also refers to the second coming where we will all stand before the white throne of judgment before God. So Advent was first celebrated in the 6th century. It was a time of fasting. It was a time of prayer. It was a time of preparation. It was a time of doing without uh, before the Feast of Christmas in, in the same way that Lent is a fast before Easter. So the four weeks of Advent flow in the 12 days of Christmas, beginning with the Nativity on the 25th of December right to the 6th of January, usually what is called the Epiphany. That's when the whole season comes to an end. So Advent is a season to prepare for the celebration of the birth of Christ. But it's also a time, a good time to prepare to meet the Holy Judge of all the one who will finally come to judge the world. So Advent, the next four Sundays, is really a good time to pull back and to ask if Christ should come this evening. Are we prepared to see him face to face as our judge? Are we prepared to be judged by a holy God? Are we clean? Are our hands clean? Is our heart clean? Is our mind clean? So Advent is a good time to remember the first coming of Christ, but certainly to remember that there will be a second coming, and this time he comes to judge the world. So the major emphasis of Advent is reflection, contemplation, waiting, preparing, and getting right. This is the meaning of the Advent. How then are we to observe the Advent? If I'm making all this music about the Advent, how then? What's the best way then to observe the next four Sundays? I think for this year at least, 2012, for this year, I would like for us to prepare for Christmas by asking one simple question. Why did Jesus come? 
Now there are really six reasons, biblical. There are six biblical reasons for why Jesus had to come. Um, but I'll just explore four of these reasons in the next three, four weeks for the four weeks of Advent that we have. I want to pick up four of those six reasons for why Jesus should come, must come, had to come. And so today the very first reason why Jesus had to come, the reason Jesus had to come is this. He comes to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came into this world to advance the kingdom of God. And how did he do it? He did it by destroying the works of the devil. In fact, there was one demon who was sharp enough. There was one demon who was theologically sharp enough uh, to pick it up. Crying through the voice of one man in the synagogue, this spirit-possessed man said to Jesus, Have you come to destroy us? You remember that? Mark chapter 1, 24. That devil was a sharp cookie. He knew. He knew the moment he saw Jesus, he knew that Jesus came to do what he must come to do. And he says, did you come to destroy us? In fact, he added these words. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So that demon, whoever he was, understood. He knew the scriptures. He knew that there will come one who will destroy him. But no one puts it more bluntly than John. John puts it very, very pungently, really. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 8, in the, passage that we've, in the passage that we've just read, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christmas is the celebration of the appearing on earth of God's Son. And the Word of God puts it in one short Blunt sentence, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's the reason for Christmas. And that's the reason for why he was born. So the first question is this. If he came to destroy the works of the devil, works, plural, what then are the works of the devil? The works of the devil which the Son of God came to destroy are sins. Verse 8, A, first part of verse 8, he who does what is sinful is of the devil. It's quite clear. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the devil is the author of sin. And he who is sinful is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Verse 8, and verse 9 carries on to say, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. In other words, if you continue to sin habitually, you're of the devil. He's your father, not God. You may shout to the blue till you're blue in the face that you're a Christian, but you're really a child of the devil if you habitually sin. I don't mean if you sin every now and again. Through your weakness, you fall. Which one of us hasn't fallen. In fact, from day to day we fall. But if, the sin, if sin is the mode, and the modus operandi of your life, then you're really not of God. It's in verse 9. No one who is born of God continues to sin. 
because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he is born of God. He's right there in verse 9. See, when people commit sin, it is the work of the devil. The work of the devil is to tempt people to sin. And when they sin, the devil's work is done. And the devil's work is done from morning to, no- to noon to, to, to dawn every single day. Even now, as I stand here speaking, the devil accomplishes his work in him, in him, in him, in her, in them, in this nation, in their tribe. Everyone who commits sin is of the devil. Now, if we need to whittle it down, this whole sin question as to what it really is, if you want to push it further and ask, well, okay, what really then is sin? Well, verse 4 tells you, sin is lawlessness. Every time I make myself a law unto myself, I'm of the devil because I've sinned. Lawlessness is living as though God does not exist. When we live like that, then we enthrone ourselves as God. And lawlessness is sinning with impunity, as if God has nothing, as if God's law is nothing that is worth considering. So whenever I become a law unto myself, when I decide what I decide, I sin. Whenever I choose to live the way I choose to live, I sin. Because I'm saying I'm a God unto myself. This is lawlessness. And this is the very thing that Jesus comes to earth for, to destroy. But, but there is another way you can look at the work of the devil. And that's in John 10, verse 10. The devil comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. First, he steals, then he kills, and then he destroys. He steals the innocence of a young boy. He steals the innocence of a young girl. He comes to steal. Thieving is his business. Satan is in the business of snatching away what does not belong to him. He steals spiritual treasures. He steals, he, he steals things that are of eternal significance. He steals your purpose for living. He steals your zest for life. He robs you of your joy because he knows that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's what he pulls out of your heart. He steals your first love for Jesus. He steals your purpose for living, your fulfillment in Christ of course, you still love the Lord. And of course, you still serve the Lord. But He has stolen from you that drive, that energy, that passion to give your rock bottom to God. He steals the hot embers that are burning in your heart. He steals your passion, your ardor, your total surrender, your appetite for the Word of God. That's what He steals from you. Your eagerness to witness. That's what He steals. Your, your love for God's house. You love to be here and be with God's people. He steals that love. And he steals your burden for prayer. In the home front, he steals the harmony of your home. He steals your family oneness. He steals the faithfulness of a man to his wife. 
He steals the unity of the church. He instigates us to think ill of one another. He instigates you to think ill of your elders and your leaders. He causes us to suspect one another. He instigates us to be distrustful of one another. That's how he works. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So to the first question, what did the Son of God come to destroy? Come to destroy? The Word of God says, the Son of God comes to destroy the works of the devil. But let's push on to the second question, and that is this. How did he destroy it? If the Son of God has come to earth to destroy the works of the devil, how did he destroy it? Well, let me say that you and I must never imagine that when Jesus walked into the wilderness that afternoon, soon after his baptism, when he walked right into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, it would be very easy to make the mistake of thinking that he was ambushed by the devil. It's easy to imagine that he was tricked by the devil to walk into the wilderness. It's easy to think that he was caught unaware, that he was manipulated, that he was sucked into the wilderness by the devil. No. Jesus wasn't lured into the wilderness. Neither was he ambushed. Not at all. Please understand that the 40 days in the wilderness wasn't Satan's idea. Satan didn't come from the wilderness with his pitchfork in his hand to lure Jesus into the wilderness. No, 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 no. Jesus with the water still dripping from his hair from baptism, went into the wilderness looking for the devil to flush him out. Matthew makes this abundantly clear. He writes, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 4.1 This was intentional right from the start. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Now, theologically, the concept of wilderness is not just a place where wild beasts prowl and, and where the demons inhabit it. It's a place of God-forsakenness. It's a place where God is not. It's a place where you are on your own. And Jesus, with the waters of baptism still dripping from his hair to his shoulders, walked into the desert intentionally to flush out Satan. All this was Jesus' idea. He and the Holy Spirit collaborated long, long centuries ago to make this appointment to meet up with the devil in the wilderness. But why? Why seek Satan out? Why not leave him alone? Why wasn't it enough for him to let his baptism jumpstart his, his, his ministry? Why seek the devil out? Why did he and the Holy Spirit collaborate to have this meeting with Satan? The answer is found in one word. Rematch. Rematch. For when was it the last time that a sinless man stood in front of the devil? When was it? Before then. Before this wilderness occasion. When was it the last time when one man, completely sinless, before Jesus, stood right in front of Satan. That man was Adam. 
And the place was not the wilderness, which is devoid of all evidence of the presence of God, but that place was the luscious, beautiful garden of Eden. Christ wanted to go into the wilderness because there was unfinished business with the devil. Jesus wants to do what Adam should have done but didn't do. Jesus wants to do what Adam was to do but failed so miserably. Jesus comes to do what Adam did except that he will succeed where Adam failed. But why is this vital? Because in order for him to be our Savior, he's got to do far more than just die. Countless people have died on the cross before Jesus. Countless, literally countless of people under the reign of the Romans have died on the cross before Jesus. So he's got to do more than just die on the cross if he's going to be our Savior. In fact, his death on the cross Listen to this. In fact, his death on the cross would prove nothing unless he was dying there as a proven, sinless man, the true Messiah, and therefore can die on our behalf. But how will we ever know? How will we ever know that he is indeed the Yeshua, the Messiah, the sinless one, unless he is truly sinless? But how will we ever know that he is sinless? Is the virgin birth enough to prove that he is sinless? Where can we, how, how may we proceed from here? Jesus did not need the virgin birth to prove that he was sinless. He already was the sinless son of God. Before he was born from Mary's womb, already he was the sinless son of God. Because he was, before he was even born of a virgin. Many Christians are led to believe that in order for Christ to be sinless, he had to be born of a virgin. Now that is wrong thinking. Let's never think that in order for him to be sinless, he had to be born from a virgin. Being born by a virgin did not make him sinless. He was already sinless before he was born of a virgin. A lot of Christians believe that in some mysterious ways, sin is transmitted from Adam to us in some ways genetically. That simply is not so. Sin has not come down to us through any form of genetic transmission. Sin comes down to us through a judicial transmission. Not a genetic transmission, but a judicial transmission. Sin lies not in the genetic DNA code. No, sin does not lie in the genetic DNA code. Sin lies in the corrupted human heart, in their spiritual nature. It is in the depth of the soul that sin lies. Not in the helix, double helix structure of your DNA code. It does not lie there. It lies in the condition of your heart. It lies in your spiritual state. So really, it is not the virgin birth that is significant. The birth of Jesus is not in any way different from the birth of many mothers. In fact, all mothers. Mary, car Mary carried the child to full period of human gestation. Probably nine months. She probably had morning sickness. And when the hour of birth came... 
she probably had a normal birth, a normal delivery. So what is miraculous is not the birth. What is miraculous is the conception. So maybe we should stop using the term virgin birth and start using the term virgin conception, and that would be right. What is significant is that such a conception was actually prophesied right at the opening pages of Scripture, the third chapter of the Bible. That holy conception was already prophesied. You go scratching your head and say, what? The virgin birth was prophesied even as early as the third chapter of the entire Bible. Yes, it is. In verse 15 of chapter 3, God is here cursing the, the serpent for seducing Adam and Eve into sin. And God says to the, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall merely strike at his heel. I use the word merely as a loose translation. I'll say that again. God, turning to the devil, says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now listen very carefully. Her seed. He shall crush your head. This is God saying to Satan, He shall crush your head but you will merely take a little bite at his heels. Did you notice something rather unusual in that passage? I will put enmity between you, your seed, and her seed. There is something very unusual here. Christ is described as the seed of a woman. This is most unusual. In the Bible, only men have seeds. Women do not have seeds. It has always been understood that posterity comes through a man, another woman, through a seed of man. And so it is most unusual that this Yeshua, this deliverer, deliverer of the human plight, will come from a woman's seed. And it is the only instance ever in which a woman is told that she has a seed. Never again. Never again is a woman told that she has a seed. Eve is told, listen very carefully, Eve is told in so many words that out of her seed will come a savior. Now what seems to be happening here, it can only mean one thing. That Jesus was born only of a woman without the intervention of a man. Because Jesus will come out of her seed alone. Not out of her seed mixed with something else from a man. Nothing. Just out of her seed. That Jesus was born only of a woman without the intervention of a man. For otherwise, why would a woman be said to have seed for the first time and never again after that. This is the reason why ever since 
the early church in the first century, Christians have always looked at Genesis 3.15 as the prophecy of the virgin birth. And when Eve gave birth to a son, now listen to this, this is very exciting. She thought, this is the seed. When she gave birth to Cain, she thought, this is the seed. This is the one that has come out of my seed, and this will be the deliverer of all mankind. And she hoped that this son would be the one to bruise the head of Satan. But as it turned out, Cain was the seed of Satan. Right from her womb came one who was the seed of Satan. She must have gone on hoping. I'm not sure Eve lived to how long. But she must have gone on hoping. Every time a child comes, she hopes that this son would be the one who would bruise the head of Satan. But it turned out again and again and again not to be. She had hoped that out of her own womb would come the deliverer, the mother of the Redeemer. But right to the end, Eve, the mother of all mankind, waited in vain. For it had not been divinely ordained that from her womb would come the deliverer. Now Martin Luther said that God never told the devil who this he would be. And Luther is right. Luther is dead right. God never let the devil in on who this he would be. And Luther believed that each time a child is born, the devil shakes with dread, with fear, and tremble. Luther believed that the devil has lived in dread of every woman's son who was a believer, especially those who are from the covenant line, because the, nev the devil never knew who this he would be. And for centuries those words, he shall bruise your head, would haunt the devil's mind. And a long line of generation will pass before this he came into the scene, we may trace five significant generations headed by five significant men whose descendants will lead finally to the door of a poor peasant woman. One, Abraham. He was given the promise that through his line the seed will come. Two, Jacob, who was himself a type of Christ. Three, or Isaac rather, three, Jacob, who was to become the father of the twelve tribes. Four, Judah, through whose chosen tribe the Messiah, the Messiah was to come. And five, David, through whom God promised the coming King of Kings. Now, in a thousand years after that promise made to David, the angel came one evening knocking on a simple rugged door of a peasant woman. The door of a home where live, there lived a pure and a blessed virgin. She it is who will be conceived by the Holy, Holy Spirit and give birth to Yeshua, the God-man, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the one who will break the curse of the enemy. And God turns to Satan and God says to him, It is he who will bruise your head. You will be dealt with a death blow, for he will bruise your head, and you will bruise my son Christ on the heel. And you know something? 33 years after those words were spoken by the angel, after this peasant girl has heard that 
Annunciation. And now that little girl is about 55 years old now. This prophecy from Genesis finally comes true. And everyone who read the evening paper that day could have read on that Friday afternoon, the afternoon paper, Satan's obituary. And it reads something like that. Died suddenly on this day, 6th of April, AD 30, at 3 p.m., Diabolos Santanas from a fatal blow to the head. See, that would have been a, a very apt obituary on the evening paper to describe the fulfillment of Genesis 3, 5. In the death of Christ, we see the death of that. What a paradox. What a mouthful. In the death of Christ, we see the death of death. But that is true. John Owens, really. But wasn't this the prophecy? I will put my enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will merely strike at his heel, but he shall crush your head. Jesus, born of a virgin, not just he could be, not just so he could be sinless. He was a born, he was born of a virgin, to show that he is indeed the sinless one who now usurps the place of Adam as head of the human race. And if you look to Adam as your head, you're looking at the wrong person. You see, now you and I need not look at Adam as the head of the human race. The slate has been wiped clean. We've all been given a fresh start. Yes, the first block failed. And he had to go into the wilderness because there is unfinished business rematch. Whereas the first man failed, he succeeded. No gall was found in his mouth. He is sinless. Right to the end, even when they were crucifying him, he says, Father, forgive them. Sinless right to the end. And only the sinless one can save us. And this is the message of the great news of Christmas. This is the good news of Christmas. Why did he come? He comes to destroy the works of the devil. How did he do it? By remaining sinless right to the end, fulfilling the prophecy of Genesis to be the seed that finally brings into the world the man who will decisively put to death the author of death. And that's the greatest news of Christmas. And if Jesus isn't your Savior, if there is one of you here this afternoon who really hasn't made Jesus your Savior, hasn't repented of your sin, you, you, you haven't done that, if you should die tonight, you go into a very black place that God desires you not to be there, to be found there. But if Jesus is your Savior, this is the greatest month to pass through, the season of the Advent, because you could reflect on His second coming. Yes, the first coming, but you're reflecting on the second coming, where all justice, injustice will be put right, where all sin will be done away with. And you will stand before the holy God and be counted among the sheep and not amongst the goat. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this season of the Advent. Yes, we are itching to go. We are ready to celebrate. We are ready to feast, but not yet. 
not yet. Before the feast, there must be the fast. And so the next four weeks is a time for reflection, a time for contemplation, to think through where we stand before you and how if you should come tonight, whether we would be ready to meet you. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Be compassionate to us, Father. Be forgiving, we pray. Be patient with us. Give us time for amendment of life. Give us time to change. Give us time to catch up on the living God, we pray. And what a good time the next four weeks. is such a good time, Father. And so, Father, as a church, we pray that as we go through this season of the Advent, help us to think where we stand before you. We bless you. We honor you. We worship you. Amen.